Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, Hash fans. Happy Merge Day. It's a great day on a Thursday. We got Will Foxley, Christy Harkin, David Morris, and I'm Jen Sinassi on Coindesk TV right now. Christy, I'm going to toss this up to you. The merge has finally happened. The bears are a panda. I only learned about that yesterday, so that's like a very exciting thing for me. Yeah, yeah, pandas all over the place. And if anybody like me was watching the Ethereum mainnet merge viewing party last night, there were songs and dances with dancing penguins, and it was all a good time. So yeah, we were up partying till about four in the morning Eastern time, and that was all great. So yes, at 6.43 a.m. UTC, which was way late (laughs) for me in the Eastern time zone, there were actually about 41,000 people tuned in to the viewing party and we watched everything tick over. We saw the, uh, the merge happen and then we hung around and kind of bit our nails for a while to see if it actually finalized. So if we actually got a good block and if everything was being, if all the attestations were coming through and the slots were coming through and apparently there were like no missed slots for like the first four to five minutes, which is really, really good. Everybody on the, on the call was just going, this is going better than we thought it would. So everything went super well. And now if you don't know what all this is about, Ethereum has just had a major upgrade. I probably should have said this even earlier, but it had a major upgrade changed its consensus algorithm from proof of work to proof of stake. And those two, those two things kind of were ticking along in parallel. Then the test net, well, the staging network of the, the beacon chain merged with the main net. And now Ethereum is officially proof of stake after all these years. So Will, were you watching? You know, I set my alarm to wake up for it. And then I think I missed it by a little bit because of the total terminal difficulty how they were setting it, right? So they were setting it based on when this difficulty would happen. And so I set my alarm for like a half hour. Like it was pretty late by then already. So I should have probably just stayed up. I set my alarm, thought I'd like wake up with like 15 minutes to go beforehand, join the viewing party. 
And as it happens, I missed it because difficulty came a little faster than we thought it was going to happen. So I, I think I woke up like five minutes after it happened. I saw everyone just on, on Twitter tweeting about it. And I was like, well, okay, that's great. I'll just go back to sleep. But it definitely was <laughs> a pretty big event. And it brings me back two years ago oh, yeah. when we first thought about the Beacon Chain launching. That was December of 2020. And Christy and I actually worked on that story together. And it's crazy to think how long it's been since that occurred. And just the frustrations, the delays that went into this, but then like the hard staking work to get them through the finish line. And now we live in a post-merge world. For the cryptocurrency ecosystem, I think that is a demarcation, right? Compared to the past, we've been looking for this merge for quite some time. It's been talked about forever. Ethereum has had such an important place within the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And there's always been this thing hanging over its head. That is the merge. And now it's done. So I think for this new network, we're going to start wondering like, what's next? And it is a new network, right? It's completely new. So there's going to be slightly different expectations for it. People are going to think of it a little bit differently. I think just the cryptocurrency community itself is also going to be slightly changed after this. David, I want to get your take though and throw it up to you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm probably the... Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not the most expert person in this room right now. What I'm, and, and this is kind of foreshadowing for a, a topic that we're going to discuss in a minute, um, but from Christy and Will, what I'm interested in is your impression of kind of who led this effort over the years, how much input there was from different players. Was this something that was just kind of handed down from the Ethereum Foundation and Vitalik, or was it, you know, something where there was like broad participation and kind of a community effort? That's the aspect that I'm curious about. So I'm, I'm just, kind of throwing it out there. There actually were hundreds of devs working on this. And yes, it came from Vitalik. And it actually, I mean, he had this in the roadmap for Ethereum from the outset, like before there were a whole bunch of people who were even interested in Ethereum. So if you bought into Ethereum, at some point you bought into the idea of a shift to proof of stake. And a lot of people, for a lot of people, that was a drawing card for even being interested in Ethereum in the first place. So, and we have a great article that was put out this morning by Margot uh, Nijkirk and um, Sam Kessler that actually highlights eight of the developers who had a hand in it. And we're talking about people who worked on clients, people within and outside of the Ethereum Foundation, people from Consensus. So it really was very much a group effort. Will, I saw your hand go up. Yeah, I'll go quickly before handing it over to Jen. To get to your question, David, a little bit, I think that yes and no. Ethereum Foundation definitely had a large play in this. Like the chief scientist for this was obviously Vitalik, and he's been the driving motivation for this. But there's been others as well. I mean, Danny Ryan and those guys also with Ethereum Foundation, but previously not always the case, right? Uh, a lot of these people actually came along during 2017, 2018, Tim Bako, uh, who became the coordinator for the EF. He wasn't there beforehand, right? He was doing other stuff. And a lot of these clients were built just based on grants, and they were sort of booted up themselves. So if look at Prismatic Labs, which is one of the largest clients out there. They got a grant, but they were pretty separate from everything, right? A lot of these clients that built the ETH2 network, or now we're just calling it Ethereum, they didn't have a lot of involvement with the EF. They might have gotten a grant, but they went and built these things out themselves based on a spec that the EF and Vitalik have put out beforehand. So I think as far as you can say, it's like an EF thing, probably not the case this time around. There's a lot of different stakeholders involved with this, which probably makes it 
one of the more interesting developments. Jen, to you. Okay. I have one last question before we move on to the price action around this story. So now that ETH2 is just ETH and energy has decreased by more than 99%, you know, I look at most things with an NFT lens. What does this mean for the chains that claim to be Ethereum killers? A, a lot of their narrative was around the fact that they weren't boiling the oceans. They were way more climate friendly than Ethereum was. Now that the merge has happened, does that pose a problem for these Ethereum killers? I actually would jump I in on jump that in there. and point out something. All right, give it to David. Um, Go ahead. So, so the environmental question is one thing, and it is important. But um, you know, one of the things for people to know is that Ethereum fees are not expected to go down immediately because of the merge. There are further stages that might accomplish that. But I think fees might be a bigger selling point for a lot of these competitors, and, and especially layer twos, than, than the environmental aspect. So that's worth keeping in mind. Will, yeah. uh, I guess Will will uh, continue our discussion of other aspects yeah. of the merge. We'll, we'll talk about some prices now. That's what everyone wants to know about anyways, right? To, to Jen's last question, I think... That marketing ploy is probably out the window, but that's okay. NFT grifters will come up with something else soon yeah. enough. <laughs> uh, let's talk about prices now. Ethereum is actually down 6% on the merge. That's kind of sad and unexpected. There's been $80 million in total liquidations across both ETH and ETC. ETC, of course, is the old Ethereum classic network from back in the day during the DAO uh, so it's actually the original canonical chain if you're really going to get technical with it. And a lot of miners have been moving back to ETC, mine that chain in the wake of the merge and the shutting down of mining on ETH. A lot of people were trading around this movement, the merge. Price of ETH went up like 55% over the last three months over the summer. And people are thinking, oh, we should buy into this, buy into the momentum. The merge is happening for once. People are going to expect ETH to be a higher price after this. And then there's some people thought, well, buy it and then we'll dump it when the merge occurs. So far, that seems to be directionally correct, though not as bad as I would have thought. Uh, the price of shorting Ethereum, notably, and we talked about this yesterday, was pretty expensive. You had to pay longs, those people who are thinking the price of Ethereum was going to go up quite a bit to be able to short. And we're seeing that those shorts paid off decently well over the last few hours as the price of ETH has gone down. David, I want to get your take on this. Ah, price action is great. Talking about price tokens or the price of tokens is interesting. But for the most part, a lot of these things are driven by macro factors and not by the technicalities of it. But you might have a different opinion. Yeah, I mean, there is a macro element here because we're looking at price declines across the board for crypto markets this morning that are pretty substantial. So it is hard to, to disentangle that from the uh, buy the news, sell the fact phenomenon that you were talking about. But it, it does seem, you know, that this is mostly kind of short-term traders who are responsible for whatever portion of this price action comes from the merge. And the opportunity here for people who are thinking in terms of fundamentals is that, yeah, we have seen Ethereum prices go up over the last six months somewhat steadily, and now we've got a big drop. So if you if you're somebody who believes that the merge is a long-term bullish catalyst, which you know I I'm gonna make you mad, Will, but I think that NFTs actually are a big part of that story. And uh, so, so if you believe in that, then you, uh, you, this is perhaps an opportunity, at least relative to prices over the last six months. So if you're a fundamental investor, now might be a decent time to get in. Um, although obviously there are macro headwinds, both in terms of uh, inflation, the Fed, and as we'll talk about in a minute, regulation. So 
you know, look at your fundamentals and decide where you want to be right now uh, that this has been successful. And one of the things that we've actually seen people talking about lately that, I mean, it has, there have been rumblings in the past, especially with the fee burning mechanism that was introduced with EIP 1559 a while back, is the idea of ether becoming actual money as opposed to gas, as opposed to something that you need in order to transact on the Ethereum blockchain, which it was never really intended to be on a certain level. There was supposed to be valuable, but it was not supposed to be considered money in the same way that Bitcoin is being considered hard money or currency for the masses. And there has been more talk of that. I've, I've seen more people talking about that lately, leading up to the merge and saying, you know, if this kicks in, if this works, then Ether stands to be an actual deflationary currency still and, and an actual currency and not just not just the gas that powers the blockchain. David? Yeah, I was just going to jump in and double down on that, um, which is to, for people who might not know, EIP 1599 just changed the tokenomics pretty substantially. And the argument that's being made by some people is that the issuance of Ethereum and the burn is now going to cancel each other out or get very close to it so that once you integrate and add lost ETH to that, so people lose wallets at a pretty steady rate, then you actually may have a, a tight or even deflationary currency. ETH does still have the sort of existential disadvantage versus Bitcoin that that issuance can be changed somewhat easily relative to Bitcoin. And so that's, you know, longer term still a consideration, but that's a, that's a very complicated debate. And I see the complications passing through Christie's head as I say it out loud. <laughs> um, but don't, don't vibrate yourself off the screen. I mean, feel free to jump in, though. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to let Jen have a crack at this. I got nothing to say on price action. <laughs> I think I'm going to let Will wrap it up and then we can take our break. Let's do it. Yeah, I, I'm All actually right. like somewhat surprised that the price of ETH went down after this. Uh, I thought it would like maintain or pump maybe even like 5%, just like a little treat, right? I think they, all the developers need a little treat, but macro headwinds are going to do what they're going to do. Coindesk has a new event. It's called Ideas, the Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. It facilitates capital flow and market growth by connecting the digital economy with traditional finance. Join us for a 360 investment experience where you can source, invest, and secure the next big deal in digital assets all in one place. Use code HASH20 for 20% off a general pass. Register today at coinest.com forward slash ideas. We have a big, big hearing this morning going on in the Senate, and the discussion is about who gets to regulate crypto, basically. And this has been a long time coming, and it's still unclear exactly when any definitive decisions will be made. But the discussion at its core is whether the Commodities Futures Trading Commission or the Securities and Exchange Commission will have jurisdiction over crypto and of which specific parts of crypto. And we can get into it, but uh, the SEC definitely believes that a lot of cryptocurrencies are securities, which means they're the product of the work of a specific group of people. The CFTC, and I think a lot of people agree that at least Bitcoin is a commodity, which we can talk about what that means. But we're going to, I think, get some real motion here over the next 
six months to a year, and it's going to have some serious impacts. Will, go ahead and jump on. Yeah, this is an interesting little change from a week ago. Nicholas Day, reporter here at Coindesk, had an awesome interview with Gary Gensler talking about his stance on tokens. And he was pretty hardline, right? He was like, we have this written out. This has been known for years. And these crypto projects need to register with the SEC. Especially these crypto exchanges need to register with the SEC. Week later, we have written testimony going into this hearing saying, well, we should provide a pathway for these crypto tokens to register. They are securities, but we need to provide a pathway for them to move in with us and be under our, our umbrella. So it's a little bit different, right? The first one's a little bit more jaded, a little bit more energetic, saying mm. you need to comply now, like you need to figure this out. And the second one is, well, we can help you out a little bit. And I'm wondering uh, what caused the change in thought behind that, and if there's a change in thought, or if it's just you know a little bit different because he's writing it out and not quite on the spot. There might be a difference there. One thing that came to mind, however, is like there's a lot of tokens out there. Maybe after his language went out there, his staff was looking at this and being like, okay, how do you expect us to chase down all these tokens? I think from the SEC's perspective, mm -hmm. if they have to register all these tokens, like that's a lot of paperwork. That was a lot of compliance work. That was a lot of oversight. And it makes sense for them to provide some sort of path for all these tokens, which have previously thought they could operate as they wanted to, or you know, they decided they could operate as they wanted to. It makes sense for there to be some sort of pathway to bring them under the SEC umbrella, if that is the thing they should do. Of course, a lot of these tokens are not going to like that. They see themselves as some sort of money, or they see themselves as some sort of utility project out there that's not security. So there's going to be ongoing conversations about this, but definitely... Some notable words from Gary Gensler. I think I saw both Jen and Christie's hand go up. I'll throw it to Jen first. Yeah, well, you zeroed in on exactly what I did. You know, Gensler's tone seems to have really changed as we look to the Senate Banking Committee today. And I feel like that is almost because the SEC has shown that they really want to regulate this industry, but the industry has shown more support for the CFTC, right? And we've spoken about this like, SEC versus the CFTC when it comes to oversight of this industry. And I think Gensler is starting to realize he needs to be a little bit softer and actually offer the things he's saying he's offering to the industry for the industry to support the SEC's want to oversee it. And so, you know, we've seen the SEC say before, come in, talk to us. We're here for you. Let's work on a plan and then turn around and sue the exact companies that come in and talk mm. to them and try and work on a plan. And so for me, this is just all talk. It will be interesting to see what happens after these two hearings. And, and another story that came up today, you know, Coinbase has launched the, their uh, platform that educates its users on how politicians are looking at regulation. And so if this is something that is interesting to you and something that you want to have a say in, I encourage everyone to go and learn what candidates are, are saying about regulation ahead of the midterms. But Christy, what do you think? Yeah, I always get a little frustrated with the regulation aspect of things. On one hand, there are definitely some platforms out there and, and that, that definitely should be regulated. They fall under a regulatory umbrella that is pretty well defined. Um, but when it comes to a lot of the cryptocurrencies, the tokens themselves, there has been so much waffling on the part of defining things over the last seven years. When you look at Ethereum, for example, when it first launched, I know I, I've said this many times on other in other uh, fora that 
They went to lawyers. They went to the SEC. They went to all kinds of people trying to get some kind of clarity on what it was they were doing and how they could do it within the parameters of the regulatory environment out there. And they basically got shown the door and told, you know, ah, it's fine. I'm sure. Just do whatever. Or we don't know what it is we're looking at. We'll deal with it later. And then they come back at them and say, oh, by the way, you're breaking the rules that we are only now just making up for you. And that's frustrating. And maybe that is what the SEC really has to learn and where the CFTC is having a different approach to things is they're you know, saying, hey, yeah, it's been kind of sucky for you guys. Let's see if we can make it easier because we didn't make it easier for you when it really needed to be. David? Yeah, I mean, I would say two things. Just to clarify, I mean, the overriding reason the CFTC is more appealing as a regulator for crypto operations is because they're simply not that concerned with the activities of the people overseeing the commodities that they're responsible for regulating. They just regulate the futures market. So, you know, they're not requiring the kinds of disclosures that you would under SEC oversight et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it's just much more friendly in general as a framework because you, you would regulate something like Bitcoin where there is no known creator, there is no central administrator whatsoever. It just kind of exists out in the world in the same way that a natural commodity like coal or silver or something like that exists. So, so I mean, that's the big picture reason people like the CFTC. As far as the lack of clarity, yes, it's extremely frustrating. And when, when I hear Gensler say something like, we want a pathway, it immediately makes me think of Caitlin Long's proposal for a safe harbor that would allow an actual evolutionary process for these projects that acknowledges the idea that maybe the tokens really are there for a utility purpose and for standing up a truly decentralized system. Um, and and it's, it's very disappointing that that idea has not gotten serious traction as far as I can tell. It seems like something that at least matches the reality on the ground of how these tokens are used once projects really come to fruition. And so pour one out for, for the safe harbor proposal. It does not seem like it's getting where we would like it to be. Will, go for it. Oh, no. Let's jump to the next story, actually. Throw it over to okay. you, Jen. All right. Let's move on over to FTX. So according to a source, FTX is raising money to fund more acquisitions. So the person said that Sam Bankman-Fried's exchange is evaluating several possible takeover candidates some of which are retail trading platforms. They're seeking the same $32 billion valuation that it was assigned during a raise earlier this year. Will, I'm going to throw it right back to you. What do you make of this? SPF is apparently raising some more money to gobble up some, some more platforms. How much power is too much? <laughs> you know how to raise money and you know how to deploy it when I do it, right? Uh, it, this is interesting, but it's not necessarily something that's outside their playbook. FTX has raised a lot of money. I wish I had the number in front of me. I know the last raise I did was for $900 billion. And I think the valuation has stayed within the $30 billion range, which is notable given that cryptocurrencies themselves have just like fallen off a cliff since then. So uh, obviously, a lot of teams are still valuing them highly whether because their operational efficiency, because their books are really solid, or maybe have a large cash position. This is not surprising though, right? SPF has made a lot of moves to acquire other firms. He was very active this summer with Voyager, with Celsius, with BlockFi, right? They were looking to get their stake in some of these companies and even help them out. Notably, Sam Bankman-Fried even said that 
They were not super worried about making the right choice just as long as they were helping out the cryptocurrency industry. And maybe that's a little glossy eyed, not exactly true. I would say from a business perspective, you know, you're always doing something for a monetary edge. Uh, but from a raising perspective, the thing that I'm really curious about, honestly, is how much equity is Sam Bankman Freed willing to give away in order to raise more capital, right? They have a pretty small team. I think it's less than 500 at FTX, which for such a large exchange, it's 24-7, pretty small. Compare that to Coinbase or Binance, which is into thousands of people, right? Uh, Coinbase itself laid off, I think, like 1,200 people in the spring, which is like more than double the staff of FTX, right? So like layoffs alone are, are this magnitude larger. The FTX probably controls its equity pretty strongly. And I'm wondering, how are all these raises diluting that equity? And what does that do to the founders' positions? What does that do to FTX itself? And when FTX eventually or possibly goes public, what does that do for its holders? Coinbase is probably the only one we can really look at as like an anecdote in the past. Coinbase had a decent amount of equity holders in it, including things like Paradigm. And they cashed out really well. But it doesn't seem like they really did this playbook where they used their equity in order to get raises. David, I want to throw this one over to you that will get your take on it. Yeah, my, my most important takeaway is this, this note about them wanting to expand into more retail-focused uh, realms. And you, know, you think about FTX as a, an exchange that I guess the impression that I have, and this is totally holistic, but it is definitely more of a quant day trader slash professional institutional investor kind of platform in terms of who is, is interested in it. And I can definitely envision a lot of potential for FTX if they did something that was a little bit more like a Robin Hood type of setup that was more kind of friendly and, and low barrier to entry. So strategically, and, and maybe a different brand, right? Because FTX, even the name is literally spiky and has an X in it that is like, you know, this is for dangerous people. And, uh, and, and so like, Branching out in that direction does make sort of uh, tactical and strategic sense, it seems like. I mean, I think that if they're, you know, this is all about positioning for the next bull run, right? Like they're the people who have managed to not lose their shirts in this cycle. And if FTX managed to line up like a Robin Hood of crypto, even if it wasn't in the United States, that could be really massive next go round. So, you know, Will, I totally get your point about equity, but I also think as long as you see a real opportunity for substantive expansion, then, you know, in theory, you're not really giving up much if you hand over some equity in exchange for that because the, the pie itself gets bigger. But Jen, go for it. Yeah, I just wanted to remind our audience, based on what you and Will both, both said about FTX's success over the last bull run and their continued success during the bear market. I, I don't know if, if you guys remember, but I think it was about three weeks ago. Their revenue was leaked by someone, we don't know who, maybe maybe them, and it said that they were able to increase their revenue by a thousand percent during the last bull run. So it just, you know, shows that the, the business is being run well, and if they're able to raise money and prep for the next bull cycle, I think that's exciting, even though I said, you know, how much power is too much power for, for one man with amazing hair? Christy, what do you think? Yeah, it's all about the hair. actually. I think the one takeaway I had on this is this is what bear markets are kind of for. It's for having a big player come out on top and gobble up all the struggling places, companies um, and assets that are out there, you know, languishing when there's a downturn. We're seeing it in the 
the Bitcoin mining market. <laughs> We're seeing who is going to, you know, who's going to buy out who and where the mergers and acquisitions are going to come in. And I think we're seeing something similar with FTX. They're looking around going, okay, who's cheap? What can we, what can we pick up? What can we do? How can we expand when prices are potentially lower than they might be in a bull market and set ourselves up for success when everything rises later? It seems like a pretty smart play that if you can pull it off, you might as well go for it. All right. I think let's leave it there. It's been a great day. Merge day. Finally, it's here. Mm. We're all happy and excited. We're still talking about regulations. There's no clarity there really. And FTX is still acquiring every company in the industry. <laughs> Tomorrow, I'm sure something <laughs> exciting will happen again. And we will be here at the same time and the same place to chat about it. I'm Jen Stanassi. We got Will Foxley, David Morris. And Christy Harkin here. And I think we all need to say a very sad farewell to Control. Control, Teresa Santos will be having her last day tomorrow. It's going to be a oh, really no. sad day. I Teresa, we're going to miss you so much. We're going to tell you again tomorrow. Everyone, please come back for that farewell. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.